Hey there. Welcome back. I'm Allison B. Young, and this is Gathered Storied Botanicals. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting an extra week for the next installment of these stories. Some nasty bug made a liar out of me, and I needed the time to get my voice back, so I appreciate you hanging in there for me. Thank you. The surreal and dazzling spectacle that is all brass still lingers with me from all those years ago. As I'm catching up, I'll have to track down some images to put up for you to get a glimpse of what a strange and beautiful place it is. One of the many wonderful aspects of working a flower job is exactly that glimpse, to see into these different worlds. Still being fairly new to Charleston at that time, it was an incredible lesson in learning the lay of the land, as well as lending me a sense of history and culture to the place. Just by driving to different venues and having some small part in adorning these buildings or transforming them completely with flowers and greenery gave me a greater understanding of the very place I inhabited at that point in my life. Working as the delivery driver for another flower shop gave me the great experience of navigation. As obvious or simplistic as that may sound, learning the various routes of a place, the back door entrances to hotels or funeral parlors, to discovering neighborhoods that I would never know about otherwise, offered me a different perspective. It was peeking behind the curtain of how the food or hospitality industry works, or seeing how different people live, brushing up against milestones or important dates in people's lives. I wish I could say every part of working a flower job is getting to travel and take in beautiful spaces, but not every day of that first flower job was all brass. Mondays, in fact, were quite different for me. I often had the shop to myself and spent the day cleaning up after a weekend full of weddings and events. One of my very first jobs was working as a dishwasher at a restaurant, but this took doing dishes to a whole new level. The ladies that I worked for called it Cinderella work. The remains from the week were left strewn throughout the open, bright space of the flower studio. It was my job to pull the flowers that had succumbed to mold and become mush, to toss out the sour-smelling water left in buckets and vases, and to fill up the paper compost bags. I swept and mopped floors. I scrubbed and bleached and windexed away any fungal propensities that could threaten the next shipment of flowers for the week ahead. There were certainly moments it felt like drudgery, depending on how busy a weekend it was could mean a very long Monday. But I learned to appreciate the feeling of this kind of reconciliation. Putting something back together, making sense of what often was such a whirlwind as working a wedding. It was cleaning the flower shop, but there was something else that felt cleansing in the act. Perhaps because it meant that we were getting new flowers in, and I had some part in making sure they would arrive and could be kept as beautiful and long-lasting as we could get out of them. They came on Tuesdays. I would drive to the airport and sling the long, narrow boxes into the van to take back to the studio, 
where everyone working would dive in and begin to process the flowers. From the moment of lifting the lids off these boxes, I could see how efficiently, even lovingly, someone had wrapped the bunches. Sweating ice packs were often tucked alongside the bundles with foreign newspapers that offered clues as to where certain shipments might have come from. Processing is the term you may hear a lot out of flower shops. That simply refers to the act of unpacking flowers, removing these bunches from the layers of packing material. We cut the cellophane wrapping from the bloom's heads. Often weary-looking and thirsty, the flowers were eager for a fresh cut and drink of water. We stripped the stems of leaves and thorns and snipped the ends to prepare them for a vase and ultimately for an arrangement. Cutting the stem at a distinct angle also became a key detail to processing. It's almost as though allowing the flower to open its mouth a little wider for the biggest drink of water it can take in, especially since so many flowers had traveled such a long way. Meanwhile, all those buckets and glassware I had spent cleaning up would get filled with water and a sprinkling of flower food, this white powder that offers some added nutrients to the bloom, as well as helps ward off any fungus or bacteria. That's what processing really is, taking all these measures to protect the flowers from the disease of mold, to slow their decline in any way possible. One thing, though, that I hadn't really considered until much later was what threats flowers might pose to us. So often we are awestruck by their beauty, their delicate whimsy, or even their seeming fragility. But in their quiet or even diminutive way, flowers can be ferocious, even deadly. In the same way humans have found and engineered ways to keep flowers alive and to honor memories, there is an extensive history of how we have engineered their toxicity, or else fallen victim to it. It's probably safe to say most of us have been affected by a plant's more venomous side at some point in our lives. Growing up in rural Virginia, it seemed there weren't many summers I could get through as a child without a run-in with poison ivy. A friend and fellow floral designer had a nasty reaction to the white sap that bleeds from the flower snow on the mountain. After she accidentally got it in her eyes, she wound up in urgent care and described the pain as having broken glass caught under her eyelid. Other flowers like grevalea or even hyacinth could leave her arms and hands itchy and covered in hives. There is this blurred line running between the potential medicinal or soothing properties of flowers to the poisonous. And whether from accidental poisoning to assassinations and suicides, we have learned to weaponize flowers, despite being so often tied to the symbolism of growth, vitality, and abundance, we have learned their ability to deceive and snuff out life. Brugmansia, or as it goes by its common name, the angel's trumpet, is an ornamental flowering tree or shrub found in gardening catalogs and people's yards 
far from its native South America. Its flowers are striking and come in varying bright colors. The pendulous blooms hang off the branches and look like a horn aimed down from the sky, ready to emit some overwhelming or heavenly sound. Native tribes have used this flower for a wide range of medicinal purposes, from treating arthritis, sore throats, to even taming agitated bowels. But for whatever relief it might have to offer for some aches and pains, the flower has been made into teas and elixirs to treat the more spiritual ailments and needs. A shaman may drink the flower as part of a ceremony or ritual, its hallucinogenic traits playing the key role in the experience. Other side effects from drinking these teas can range from confusion, migraines, seizures, to death. One of the earliest reports describing the effects of the flower described the victim as having fallen into a heavy stupor, eyes vacantly fixed on the ground, mouth convulsively closed and nostrils dilated. In the course of a quarter hour, his eyes began to roll, foam issued from his mouth, and his whole body was agitated by frightful convulsions. After these violent symptoms had passed, a profound sleep followed. It is during this stupor that people recount visions of communicating with the spirit world, predicting the future, or connecting with long-dead ancestors. Another report described the experience as terrifying rather than pleasurable. Across the globe, Sri Lanka has developed the unfortunate reputation for having one of the highest suicide rates in the world. The way so many people have been taking their lives? By eating the seeds of the yellow oleander, another flowering plant that grows alongside roadsides, or is commonly pruned into ornamental hedging, and is so readily available to the grief-stricken and vulnerable. It is yet another plant that has been naturalized and made available all over the world, including your local garden center. Going beyond the dangers of the spiritual realm or the unbearable psychic pain, flowers have even played a role in carrying out murder. On a September morning in 1978, a man walked across the Waterloo Bridge to catch a bus to work. While waiting, the man, a Bulgarian writer working for the BBC named Georgi Markov, suddenly felt a sharp pain in the back of his leg. Turning to see if some insect had stung him, he noticed a heavyset man stooping to pick up an umbrella he had apparently dropped. He muttered an apology to Markov before promptly crossing the street, where he hopped into a taxi and vanished. Markov didn't think much of the odd incident along the rest of his commute, but as the day wore on, he developed an intense fever, grew weaker by the time he was admitted into the hospital that evening, and he died a few days later. Because of Markov's sudden and mysterious death, an investigation went underway and revealed that the sharp sting had been a tiny pellet injected into his leg, containing the poison ricin. As the story unfolded, it became apparent that Markov was targeted by Bulgaria's secret police 
and with the help of the KGB. Still within the grip of the Cold War, other Bulgarian defectors were targeted, but no one has ever been arrested for the crime. That small but fatal dose of ricin comes from the flowering plant Ricinus communis, or the castor oil plant. The toxicity of it lies within its seeds, small, marbled, and brown in color. The Guinness World Records has even dubbed the castor oil plant as the world's most poisonous common plant. And while the seeds may pack the deadly punch, an alcohol extracted from the plant's leaves can actually protect the liver from other toxins. Though it does not hold any world record, this other flowering plant is perhaps one of the most well-known for the lore it's cultivated behind its venomous nature. In Scotland, it has been referred to as dead man's oatmeal, also devil's porridge. Shakespeare's witches in Macbeth weave this flower into their double-double toil-in-trouble incantation. Conium maculatum is its botanical name, but most people know it as hemlock. Poison hemlock. Native to Europe, most of the stories surrounding hemlock is in the lore of witchcraft or accounts of accidental deaths. As recently as the 1920s, many children in the UK suffered the dire consequences from using the hollow stems of the plant as whistles while playing outside. It is also easily misidentified by how similar it looks to wild parsley, dill, or Queen Anne's lace, also a member of the carrot family, and a flower commonly used in flower shops. I worked briefly making weekly arrangements for the tables at a restaurant near my hometown, and would often pull off on the shoulder of dirt roads to pick the wildflowers for something extra to fill out the small floral pieces. While reading up on this notorious flower, I couldn't help but wonder if I had accidentally snipped the stems of hemlock, believing it to be Queen Anne's lace, only to set it out on tables where people would be enjoying their lunch. As I read further on the poisonous flower, I was relieved, though, to learn some of the subtle differences that distinguish the two flowers. The main distinction is the faint, though dark, reddish or purple splatters that run up and down the stem of poison hemlock. The markings have been called Socrates' blood after its perhaps most famous victim. The ancient Greek philosopher laid the groundwork for much of the philosophical thought of the Western world. He gave us the Socratic method, a form of debate or dialogue of asking and answering questions meant to inspire critical thinking and to force one to tease out and examine their own beliefs. His philosophy was considered outrageous during his lifetime. He was mocked in the comedies of his time, persecuted and ultimately sentenced to death for his teachings. Socrates was executed by drinking poison hemlock. It seems strange to think of it today, but this was something of a common way governments punished its criminals an ancient Athenian version of lethal injection. His well-known student Plato writes of the execution in his work, Phaedo. Now, I have to admit my ignorance. Though I knew the name and basic gist of who the man was, 
I had never read up on any of the teachings of Socrates until I began piecing together this episode. I am a far cry from being a scholar of his work or life. About as far as the flowers had to travel to get to the very shop where I would process them. I would venture to say, though, that in the same way the devoted students of Socrates gathered around him on the day of his execution for one last lesson, I have learned so much from working with flowers. One of Socrates' famous paradoxes is, I know that I know nothing. I never had any formal training to be a florist. I knew nothing about the logistics of transporting flowers, to the different needs certain types require over others, to the principles of design when putting together an arrangement. And I felt painfully aware of my ignorance at times. All I knew was how to clean. When I first started working as an assistant, I didn't really think I would or could be a floral designer. I was just grateful to be working, thirsty in a way, for a steady paycheck and that level of stability I hadn't found yet living in South Carolina. I went through the motions of the Cinderella work, watching my boss and the other designers working, and it felt like such a foreign, untouchable thing to me. How do they do it? I often wondered, and felt that I could never do what they were able to do with a flower. As Plato recounts in Phaedo, he recalls the exhaustive dialogue or conversation between Socrates and his students as he readies himself to drink the poison hemlock without fear or resentment of his impending death. Unlike some of the other witchy flowers, hemlock doesn't affect your mental faculties, but rather attacks your nervous system, all the while leaving you keenly aware of your body's reaction to the poison. In the case of Socrates, described by Plato, muscular paralysis starts at the lower extremities and creeps up to the heart and lungs. Plato describes Socrates drinking the poison and pacing his cell until his legs grew heavy. He lied down, grew quiet, and then was gone. It was as though his students saw the flower grow up his body, cause him to wilt and wither. There is a chance that Plato couldn't help but bring his own artistic license when describing the death of Socrates, but I'd like to think he had a keen eye and ear as well. That he had the true admiration for his teacher, his mentor, to take in his wisdom and even his gruesome end. Another famous paradox of Socrates is this, the unexamined life is not worth living. If I learned anything from the countless flowers I unpacked, that I unsheathed from plastic and paper, it is the power of observation, the power of examining the details. I cannot tell you how many roses I have stripped of thorns and leaves, of how many stems I have snipped at that distinct angle. But without my even knowing, watching and listening around the flower shop, I was taking in aspects of this world I don't believe I would have ever learned in a florist's certification class. It is so easy to see a flower as simply beautiful. So often their bright, bold faces are pleasing to the eye, their fragrance draws us in, 
It is something so much more, though, to see these blooms for what they're capable of, their potential and their power to both heal and harm, to drive us to madness and to invite us to transcendence, to observe, to study and to challenge what you think you know goes much deeper than the surface beauty. I am still unpacking all those boxes. I am still learning. Gathered, Storied Botanicals is a bi-weekly podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode or are curious to learn more, please head over to my website at gatheredstoriedbotanicals.com. That's gathered-storiedbotanicals.com. Also on the website, you will find a poorly neglected blog, which I promise to update before long, as well as a link to Instagram, where I'll showcase a floral design as a visual accompaniment to the episode. In fact, I've put together a design based on the painting The Death of Socrates by French painter Jacques-Louis David. It depicts the final lesson the Greek philosopher passes down to his devoted followers before drinking the poison hemlock. Please keep an eye out for photos of the floral arrangement and see if you can spot the flower that so closely resembles hemlock that I was able to include. It was a thrill to put together. You can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts, and I do ask if you could rate and review it's the best way for this podcast to grow, and if you know someone who would like to have some more flowers in their life, pass the word along. Please tune in next time, and thank you for listening. <laughs>